The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. So as you know, the Friday preceding Resurrection Sunday, which obviously um, every Sunday, as was already mentioned in terms of prayer and our focus, is an emphasis on Christ's resurrection. This is not uh, the Saturday Sabbath. It is the first day of the week, and that's the nature of Christian worship is that we focus on uh, gathering together, as it's been the, the pattern of the, the church from the early church, to gather together, focusing and remembering on Christ's resurrection. And so when we say Resurrection Sunday, it's not just a, a rebuttal to, we don't want to say Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is a, a wonderful fit. We all know what we're saying with that. We're just pressing even for, uh, more form, uh, firmly that this is Resurrection Sunday, or our opportunity to remember the resurrection of our Lord and again, as you know, it's preceded by what we refer to as Good Friday. And a lot of people might find that as a, a suspect name, but it, it is a, a good thing to memorialize. And it's a good day in terms of our redemption was secured. As Peter wrote, this was uh, the, um, the lamb that John the Baptist declared, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what's the nature of that lamb? The nature of that lamb is that it, his blood was shed and it was more precious than gold or silver, is incorruptible transformative, uh, redeemed us. And so it is Good Friday, a day, again, the church directs her attention to the crucifixion of Christ, which might, again, seem peculiar to some that we would uh, celebrate or um, so heavily memorialize such a, a terrible event. But again, it obviously was uh, one of the most precious pivots in all of history. And in view of this somber but precious moment of redemptive history, many of us uh, gathered on the, the front lawn of the Neal's home and as an expression of worship, we sang truth-rich songs and that drew our attention to the sacrificial, sacrificial work of Christ, and we gave attention to the reading of the scriptures together, notably from both the Psalms and Matthew. So the selection, Matt, uh, Matt worked on preparing that and maybe in tandem with others as well, but he specifically was selecting Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. And it was a really precious time to the point I thought, boy, we don't want COVID 2.0, we don't want to get booted, but... It is nice to, to gather with the body outside, and uh, we were fortunate with good weather, but part of that was also the, the casualness of discussion. What, what goes first? Do we read Psalm 22 first or Matthew 27? We have order of service, but clearly we're, we're not driven by that. And so there was a decision, what, what do we do? Here's this one and there's that one. It wasn't quite that dramatic, but it did happen. So nevertheless, we're having to make a decision because of the relationship of those two passages. And we're going to see this morning that there is, again, a very clear, intimate echo of Psalm 22 in Matthew 27, as well as the other uh, gospel accounts as well. And in view of this, again, there was that brief discussion, which ought to be read first, because the relationship of those two texts are just so tightly knit together. And such matters draw to our attention that as careful as we want to be to allow a given text to stand on its own, so most of us... Um, have been through hermeneutics class, whether it was um, at some kind of formal institution, be it at another church or here. Um, just a number of, I guess last year we were wrapping up our, our hermeneutics um, class under Pastor Frank, and we recognize that we want a given text to stand on its own. We want to let um, a, a text to be able to to speak what, why was it inspired and what did it benefit and bring to our uh, understanding and, and sanctification and growth and grace and provoke us to worship but that being said, there's now such a profound association between these two that it's all but impossible to not hear and give some measure of attention to the gospel accounts while reading Psalm 22. It's, it's almost 
inevitable that you're going to have your mind drift toward, wow, when I hear this, I'm impacted with these things. And that's, that's natural. That's going to happen. That's okay. But we have some work to do. And so we're pressed to wrestle with how do we, how can we, or how should we hear Psalm 22? And is it, is it right to, to hear it with an echo? Is it, is it right to hear it in its own merit? Well, we, we're going to wrestle through some of that. And I want to, to provoke a better appreciation of that passage so that we would more see the, the, the glories of its reference in the gospel accounts. So again, it's a tension that's not unique to us. A uh, few things are. We're going to wrestle with the text at different times, and sometimes we think, boy, I just um, I wish somebody had resolved this. And you find out there's a lot of people that wrestle with like things, and that's the nature of being a good student of the Scriptures. And because it's not uncommon to have this tension with Psalm 22 and the Gospel accounts, we're going to see that uh, there's a variety of opinions and um, convictions on it. One of them was expressed by Steve Lawson, who he's done some really good work in terms of uh, teaching and instruction and writing. I have... Um, in my uh, resources, I have different things that are all in order, as well they should be, and, and depending on what book I'm in. If I'm right now, obviously, in James, so James has the, the special area, and so James is close by proximity. I don't have to reshelve it every time. But there's one other book that has its own little section, and that's the Psalms. I have my Psalms uh, resources kind of just by themselves uh, in God's providence over a number of years. I went from being familiar with the Psalms, maybe kind of occasionally plucking and drawing from them and finding, okay, that's helpful, that's nice to think about them too, giving a lot of time and attention to them. And I've really found it to be a precious engagement and an invaluable effort. But one of those resources that I've consistently drawn from in my own study was Steve Lawson's, and he's done a really well, a really good job in it. And with that, I'm going to provide his conclusion here. I don't agree with him. And that's okay, because you know what, friends, sometimes we don't always agree with everything, but I will respect him enough to hear him out. And I want you to hear what he has to say, because he represents a very consistent and uh, uh, I think a well thought through conclusion on this. So let's think through it for just a moment and consider it for ourselves. He states regarding Psalm 22, undoubtedly, this Psalm was written primarily with a future event in mind, specifically the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm very familiar with Steve Lawson's work in the Psalms. He's not just always rushing to uh, something beyond. It doesn't mean this because it has to mean something else later. And then you're scratching your head, well, what did it mean at the time? Or did anybody understand anything until we had later? Or was it just this, we have this, this puzzle piece of a Psalm, maybe it'll make sense one day. He's not arguing that way. What he is saying is that the nature of the, the intimate details and the, the pressing our attention toward Christ, it had to be v- written with a view primarily. And that's the difference I'd come to was, I wouldn't say primarily with a future event in mind. I would say, well, we'll walk there in just a moment. But let's see how he came to his conclusion. He came to his conclusion with uh, four significant observations in view. First, he says, there are no events in David's life that would clearly correspond to this psalm. And that, as best we know, is a factual statement. We don't know every detail of David's life, but we do have a rather generous expression of from young man to old man. And we have a a sweep of that and a well-documented expression of his life. And so there's reasons to believe that, you know, that it doesn't fit with anything that we have. Secondly, the psalm has specific phrases that could only be used of someone undergoing crucifixion. Now, um, I didn't... uh, tease out necessarily, well, what do you mean by that? Because there's only one portion of it that I would say, 
okay, what do you do with that? And that would obviously, they pierced my hands and my feet. Everything else, I think you could argue, fits potentially a range of circumstances. And even with that, there's some variety of opinion in terms of critical thought and interpretation that uh, does it necessarily mean pierce or can it mean something else? That being said, we're not going to play with uh, play in that sandbox. We're going to continue on. And then the third reason he gives is this psalm does not maintain the pattern of dealing with the psalmist's sin or regrets for his suffering. That was really helpful, I thought. You know, you can make all kinds of arguments. Well, it has to be this or it has to be this. But that tells me he's a student of the psalms. That tells me, okay, he's thought on this and wrestled through it because most of the time, especially the psalms of David, I think it's a fair and accurate uh, observation that when you have a like expression of suffering, there's going to be some kind of source that's dealt with, either the person himself or others in terms of uh, regretting sin or regrets for the suffering. And some, it, just, it doesn't have the same kind of resolution that we'd necessarily anticipate in other psalms. So I think that's helpful. And then fourth, he says, there is no call to God for vindication of wrongs suffered. Again, that's, a, that's the flip side to the third point. So they never, as terrible as his enemies are, it, they're, they're not dealt with necessarily, not immediately. And so those are things you kind of look for, you, patterns you'd expect. And so I think those are really good observations of someone who's a faithful student of the scriptures and specifically the Psalms. And it may be where you are, maybe where you were, it may be where you are after today. You may think you've unpersuaded me, and I, I hope not. I hope to direct you another way. But again, I respect Lawson's work in the Psalms. It reflects many, many other people's. But my concern here is that the conclusion he expressed on behalf of those others is that it would appear to overshadow the Psalms' original context and reception too much. I don't have a problem with looking ahead, but I don't want to shadow the value of the Psalm in its own merits, as it were. So mindful of the tension that having the gospel accounts brings to bear on the psalm, because again, it's hard to roll back and just to pretend like we don't remember Jesus quoting this psalm and the events of, of the crucifixion unfolding in the psalm. We can't, and we don't need to necessarily pretend like that didn't happen, but we want to discipline ourselves to roll it back as much as we can and see what can we draw out so that we better understand that echo. And that, to that end, I found uh, Kyle and Delsh argument more consistent with what amounts to a dual treatment of the psalm, namely that what was hyperbole for David was, by the Spirit of God, prophetic for Jesus. And what do I mean by this? I mean that we can understand Psalm 22 on its own to include its reasonable use of what I would call, really just purely for lack of a better way of expressing it, exaggerated language, hyperbole, um, not exaggerated so as to stretch an accurate expression of truth. That's not hyperbole, how that works in, in honest speech, but exaggerated in using large and dramatic imagery to express true statements and experiences. And a few simple examples could be David's statement in verse 14, all my bones are out of joint. Well, it's highly improbable that every bone in David's body was out of joint in that moment. But we understand, wow, the nature of that suffering. We understand the nature of, he's just drawing out for us um, what was being exaggerated. Um, some of you, even today, you're going to fall into this, and thankfully you're not going to be around me, or I'd, re I'd rebuke you for this. Uh, I'm starving. I tell you, you've never starved in your life. Maybe some of you have. I doubt it. But you're not starving. You're very, very hungry. There's a difference. But we use that exaggerated language to communicate something. Strong feelings, strong conclusions. And also, I would say, again, they're a fair and accurate representation of 
the experience or an expression of the experience. And again, we understand that use of language. It's also highly improbable that there were those who were casting lots for David's garments. But we understand that in view of this image and those that surround it, he was speaking to the all but certainty of his death, a well-known experience for David at various times throughout his life. Again, why would you cast lots for someone's garments? Because they don't need them anymore. And David was at the precipice of death quite frequently. But he's probably using that picture. But what was, again, exaggerated by way of picturing a true experience proved to be precisely true of Christ's experience, at least in the case of the casting of lots and a few other details, thereby proving David's words to be true in their moment and prophetic in their reach. And so, again, that's where we primarily want to view this, true in the moment, using hyperbole and exaggerated language at times, true in the moment, prophetic in their reach. So again, having the gospel accounts introduces a reasonable tension in restricting our view of Psalm 22 to its own historic context, especially because it would almost all but appear, Matt and I were talking about this Friday night, or yeah, Friday night, it, it's almost like someone gave a rough script of this is, these are some details. You have plenty of others, but I want these details in the crucifixion account. And then someone said, quite literally, okay, mocking. We're going to do that exactly like that. Head wagging, exactly like that. Casting lots, exactly like that. Piercing hands and feet. I got it. So precise. It's almost, again, like a rough script. However, it will be our aim today, at least in part, to try to draw the, the beauty and the the, the independent standing of Psalm, Psalm 22, because I think when we do that, when we hear it in the Gospels, it's going to impact us all the more. He's not just borrowing language saying, wow, this is happening around me. I think I'll use some like language to really punctuate this. I think there's something to be said for understanding it in context, original context, so as to appreciate its um, experience all the more specifically when it speaks of and unpacks Christ's crucifixion. So that being said, let's read together Psalm 22. Um, if you depend on the slides, it's going to be really small font, and I apologize. I wanted to get it all in one. Obviously, it's in your copy of the scriptures as well. So Psalm 22. And I'll go ahead and tell you the, and the preface, um, or the header, um, there's an interesting word. I'm going to do my best with it. If you have the um, ESV or a few others, they're going to say something to the effect of the, the dawn of the dough. Um, and both of those, the dawn of the dough, the, the term I'm going to struggle with in just a moment, I believe those are liturgical terms. So don't get caught up in what the dough, what, is the, what does a deer have to do with this? Don't worry about that. It's a liturgical term. So again, for the choir director, according to Ajaleth Hasheshashar, a psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you rescued them. To you they cried out and were granted escape. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They smack their lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. 
Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for distress is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have, have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a lion that tears and roars. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, be not far off. O my strength, hasten to my help. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. I will surely recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you seed of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you seed of Israel. For he has not despised and he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Of you is my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Their seed will serve him. It will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will, will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. Now, often um, it's the header of the psalm that provides um, I'd argue a, a concise expression of context. Now, there's a, maybe a, perhaps a range of um, uh, conclusions in terms of the value of a header. I do see them as authoritative. And so a lot of times you'll see uh, various things about the context and who's speaking, why they're speaking, um, the, the, the nature of their circumstances, like uh, David's feigning madness. Well, that was really helpful to know him for that psalm. Or, or there's a, a variety of expressions that you have historical context. But here, the header appears to only provide authorship, namely David. So we do know that it was David, King David, the anointed king of Israel. We have its intended application. How is this psalm to be used? Well, this really matters to me, especially in view of the fact that, if you noticed on the slides there, I didn't accidentally, like the email this morning, where I, I paste over things and then I, I, I re-put details in. I didn't just accidentally use James slides. I have a view to James today. My argument and my pressing for you is I want you to have an appreciation of James's view of the resurrection or his resurrection testimony. And so in view of the fact that this psalm was intended for what reason? For corporate worship under the director of the choir director. James would have heard this psalm. Can't speak to how often, necessarily what context, but he was a faith, he grew up in a faithful home. Joseph and Mary were known to be righteous. They were God-fearing worshipers. And so he would have had some familiarity with the song, maybe sung it. And perhaps we also have some of those difficult terms, some of them that got smoothed out in ways that don't quite fully understand how they came to their conclusions, but they're liturgical or musical instructions. And so again, um, some, some of our 
um, Isaiah, Christian Matthew, and others, they'll, they'll do things with the guitar. They'll move the little, um, is it capo? Is that what it's called? I'm learning. Um, they'll adjust that for different key changes and whatnot. It matters because it impacts how they play, which impacts how you sing. And so there's instructions for the Psalms in that regard as well. But we don't have historical context. He doesn't say, well, David was musing over his uh, future son who would be crucified. Well, definitely don't have that. We don't have David was struggling um, under Saul or Absalom or others. or We just don't have that. So we have, what we do have is authorship, the use, and again, perhaps some practical instructions for the singing or playing of this psalm. Nothing unusual. That's information that we have in the header. But in view of the opening question, boy, wouldn't it have been nice to have more information? We naturally would have loved to have more because David delivers, I would argue, one of the most weighty lines of the Psalter. And again, maybe you're an especially good student of the Psalms and you could think of like, well, there's, there's that one question or that one line that really pricks the heart or draws things out. Even so, I think this will stand. I would argue it's one of the most weighty lines of the Psalter. Really, in some ways, um, it would be definitely among the weightier in the scriptures in general. One that we're all too familiar with. When he states or asks the one question of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now I know this line is very challenging for us, but maybe not in the way that I wish that it was. I almost wish we could hear that line and just be haunted by it, that anybody, any believer of any generation could utter such a thing, that it would, it would cause us to tremble. Why, why would somebody, much less a righteous man, declare such a question? But I think it's challenging for us because we struggle to separate it from our view to the cross, which is not bad. It belongs there, and we're so grateful. But I don't want you to miss its intended impact because for just a moment, at least for a little bit here, I want you to, 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 to struggle, to wrestle, to muse over, to think that David first penned this hundreds of years before Christ's public ministry and incarnation, excuse me, incarnation, public ministry, and ultimately his crucifixion. And I want you just to, to think about the fact that, again, David had his moments. I know some, at least one person that just doesn't like King David. They don't know him personally, obviously. But they don't like even his, his person in terms of his, his place and esteem throughout the redemptive history and the scriptures because of his failures. And I think that's tragic because the scriptures uniquely elevate him. And I want you to recognize that for all his faults, he was a magnificent, I would say the quintessential worshiper. He, he worshiped in a way that reflected he knew and loved and even just had a, a, an intimate feel for God in ways that I don't think that we've quite captured. And so for him to say something like this, that ought to bother us. It to really, really bother us because of the terrible weight of the question. Again, even if someone, a, a, a godless person walking down the street doing terrible things to people, if they were to declare that, I think, well, it makes sense, but it's still a disturbing question. But this is a righteous man who's, again, asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken? Why have you abandoned? Why have you separated yourself from me? A question that's only further exasperated by the nature of the description. You could say, well, 
poetic imagery and, and uh, hyperbole. Let's continue reading. Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. There would appear to be, in his language here, there's an impassable chasm between David's petition for help, which he constantly was crying out for help, and any prospect of de- for deliverance. Just this last week, there was, um, uh, on my way home Friday from here, um, I took a, a certain route that was more advantageous, except for the fact that a tractor trailer was on a road it shouldn't have been, it had jackknife gone off the road, driver is okay, but I knew enough that mm, they're blocking the other lane in a curve, so I called 911, and I was a little surprised for just a moment, I got put just for a moment on an automated, you've reached 911 services, and I thought, glad this isn't a bigger emergency, I just wanted to make sure someone cleared them out of the road and made it more safe. There was an expectation to be heard. And if I was in a true crisis of that tractor trailer, if I'd gotten tangled up in that and it jackknifed and hit me, I would have been crying out. And if I knew nobody was going to hear, my, my difficulty, the burdens of my moment have just compounded infinitely, haven't they? So David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm crying out and my salvation and my being heard. There's an, there's an impasse here. There's a chasm. They're not being reached. They won't reach one another. My voice won't reach enough. I'm not heard. So his petition for help and any prospect of deliverance would appear to be in vain in this moment. Again, a chasm marked not only by distance, but by time as well. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. So it's not that, Lord, I... You know, in that moment, I, I cried out to you. you know, it's I've, I've cried out, and I've cried out, and I've cried out, and I'm crying out. Have you abandoned me? Because I groan, I call, I plead both day and night, and yet I am left unanswered. And this is the language of brokenness, but, but perhaps even worse. I'd say a, a hopeless brokenness, as it appears to have no prospect of deliverance. Now, if we were working through this passage in a different context, and by different context, I mean um, not Sunday morning, or I don't know what we could do to, to foster this, but I would be inclined to just stop here, just say, okay, we're, we're done for now. We need to, to go home or just sit by ourselves or, or otherwise, and just urge you to take an indefinite period of time to meditate, to chew on, to wrestle with the language here as it's, it's the proper impact. It takes time to soak in. Because I don't want to be, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? I'm crying out. I'm not heard. And then it's okay. There's resolution. Because it didn't maybe hit quite as hard as it ought to have. Because I know, I know us well enough. I know myself and I know most of you well enough to know that if you cried out for help and you weren't heard, I know what that feels like. And I want us to realize and appreciate, again, there's not a fast and easy resolution here. So there's a compounding weight that ought to really accumulate, and truthfully, I would say it should leave you unsettled, because it's perhaps a disservice to both you and the text to give a resolution too quickly. We need to recognize this. This is terrible. Uh, this isn't a bad question. This is a, a terrible question in the sense of the crushing nature of it. So don't rush to a resolution. And because we're working in this format, and the fact is that we'll be resolving it fairly efficiently here. In just a relatively short time, we're going to advance down this painful path and come to a merciful resolution, and that's good. 
But in view of that, let's at least try to carefully consider the nature and broader context of at least the language of, of forsaken. We don't want to just pass over it and say, well, I don't really use that language for forsaken. I don't have a point of contact, and I'm confident the Lord hears me. Don't lose this. And so in view of this, I want to draw our attention to just a sampling of its uses in the scriptures and to get an idea of what's the nature of this weighty question. So we go back all the way to Genesis 2.24, I believe the first use of this term. And it was a, a really good use, a positive use. It provides us the, the first use of this term, forsaken or abandoned. But here we see it in a, a positive expression, but one that gives insight, as it were. And it's clearly distinct from David's use in Psalm 22, but the core of their application remains the same. It is that of separation, a change, or breaking of a relationship. Genesis 2 states, therefore a man shall leave, abandon, forsake. Leave fits better because this isn't an antagonistic or a, a grievous separation, it, but it is a separation. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Then later, Genesis 39, we see a, another rather dramatic expression of separation. Uh, forsaking, and this time it's not a relationship, an object, but it's an object, an, ob an absolute, though, an absolute decisive separation for one's personal welfare. Read in Genesis 39, then she, Potiphar's wife, seized him, Joseph, by his garment, saying, lie with me. And he left, abandoned his garment in her hand, and fled, and went outside. He separated himself from it, ran, distance, but moving closer to the spirit of what we see in our text, we come to Psalm 94, verse 14. And we read, For Yahweh will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Well, that's an encouragement, isn't it? Yahweh's not going to abandon his people. He will not forsake, leave his inheritance. It's an encouragement, is it not? knowing that Yahweh will not forsake his inheritance. And this is so preciously affirmed by Isaiah in Isaiah 49, 14 to 16, where we read, But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Well, that's a really uh, weighty, grievous uh, expression of, of one's experience. But that's not the end of the story. But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. To which is responding, can a man forget her, or can, can, excuse me, can a woman forget her infant and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. But we do know there are clear contexts in which Israel can and has been forsaken for a time, as we see expressed and really warned what would definitely come to pass we see here in Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 to 18. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the foreign gods of the land and to the midst of which they are going, and they will forsake me. The people will pursue idolatry, separate themselves from Yahweh, and break my covenant which I have cut with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them. And hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will find them, so that they will say in that day, is, not God, is it not because our God is not among us? There's been separation that these evils have found us. But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. So we see that idolatry is, is a forsaking of the Lord, which results in being forsaken. 
But again, we balance this out, though, with passages such as Psalm 37. We see in 20, uh, verse 28 and verses 33 and 34 the following. For Yahweh loves justice and will not forsake his holy ones. They are kept forever, but the seed of the wicked will be cut off. And then the wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Yahweh will not forsake him in his hand. He will not condemn him when he is judged. Or even Psalm 9, verses 10 to 12. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to Yahweh who abides in Zion. Declare among the peoples his acts. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Okay, so what have we observed here? So we're trying to appreciate the weight and the nature of this term. So what have we observed here? Well, that to forsake is to break or create a distance in a relationship. And that Yahweh does not arbitrarily forsake his people. Though for a season, sin, notably idolatry, may naturally necessitate separation, but ultimately the Lord keeps his people and will restore his beloved. And he has not forsaken those who seek him, nor does he forget the cry of the afflicted. So how do we reconcile? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning, my crying out to you. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. David is wrenching in the pain of being personally abandoned, forsaken, separated from his God. However, there's no indication of sin. He doesn't, he's, he's generous in his confessions. There's no indication of sin or drifting into gross idolatry. Only cries that are seemingly going unheard. And the matter is intensely personal. It's not David standing in as the representative of the nation. We've drifted and we've abandoned you. Lord, restore us. Don't, don't abandon us. No, it's for his own soul that he cries out to his God. And you can hardly parse out and draw special attention um, to, when you draw special attention to these elements here. It's hard to, to separate. To, you almost, if you're a a new highlighter person, what do you do? You tend to highlight everything. And all of a sudden, a, a book that was white or that brownish tan color, all of a sudden, it's all yellow now because you don't know when to stop highlighting. And if you just say, well, what are the personal elements here? I want to draw those out. Well, now you just, you're highlighting everything. And we can see here the personal elements uh, effectively saturate this. It's my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. See that intensely personal, intensely personal. I've, I've called out, I've cried out, I'm begging, Lord. This righteous man, seemingly forsaken. Again, it appears that a, a terrible element of David's being forsaken is that he cries to his help, to his hope, to his joy, to his God, and receives no answer. The very privilege of beseeching the Lord has been robbed of its value as he appears to be unheard and it's leaving him restless. And I would remind you that this again was David, not the crew of, of Jonah's rebellious voyage. Uh, you don't want to be captain of the ship that Jonah says, I want to go far from God. Can I hitch a ride? That's bad company. And that's the nature of the company that when they were in despair and desperation and they were, when they were fearful of their lives, what did they do? They called out to their respective gods. 
and then they press Jonah, hey, you, whoever you are, you do the same. You call out to your God, hoping someone or something might hear them. There's this arbitrary, would some God help us? No, that's, that's not who's engaging here. This is David, again, whose testimony is one of crying out to God and being heard. We see this over and over again. Psalm 4, verse 3, Yahweh hears when I call to him. Psalm 17, 6, I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to, to me. Hear my speech. Psalm 18, 6, In my distress, I called upon Yahweh and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Psalm 34, 6, This poor man called out, and Yahweh heard and saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm 55, 16 to 17, As for me, I shall call upon God, and Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will bring my complaint and moan, and he will hear my voice. And yet, here he is now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. I'm trying to press you. I'm trying to help us to appreciate. I want you to feel the weight. I want you to feel the pain of those words, at least as best as we can. And it's one of those you might look at and be like, oh, that's heavy and that's hard. But if you think about, boy, if that was my testimony, that would be terrifying to cry out to God, to beg, to plead, to be heard, and to conclude, I've been abandoned been forsaken relationship cut off but we need to we need to feel that tension there um, and that tension ought to remain with us and it's going to shape the remainder of this psalm and as we well know it'll also shape the burden of the cross work of christ they're haunting words haunting words that both pierce and crush and now from an articulation of David's profound struggle, we come to an affirmation of God's faithfulness in verses 3 through 5. Here David has expressed his, he's already expressed his heartbreaking inquiry and then begins this section with a strong qualification. So here, I'm going to lay the foundation. I've cried out to you. I don't understand. You're not answering. And now he's going to uh, provide some, uh, a strong qualification. He's stating that he appears to be discarded and unheard. And I would emphasize that. That's perception. It's not necessarily the full totality of his experience as we'll go on to see. But even so, he affirms that Yahweh is perfectly set apart, that he is holy. So he's not saying, well, you've abandoned me and now I know what kind of God you are. Now he's saying, Lord, I, I'm crying, I'm not heard, but you, Lord, you're perfectly set apart. You are perfectly holy. Yahweh is holy and is sovereignly enthroned and receiving the praises of Israel. He's inhabiting the praises of his people. He's finding great delight in it, and he's, he's ruling as king over their worship, over his covenant people. Yahweh is receiving the praises of them whom he has not forsaken. So we see that David was not challenging the character of God in his despair. He was recognizing the Lord's holiness, the Lord's authority, and his praiseworthiness. And in such even in the midst of this profound pain and profound struggle and genuine question, 
he still maintained a high view of God in his distressing struggle, which was again infinitely compounded by his appearing to have been forsaken. But I would argue that this high view of God, which is really just a right, an elevated, a proper view of God, also kept him tethered to hope. Because while his experience appeared to be one of trusting and not being delivered, of calling out and not being heard, of trusting but struggling to not feel disappointed, it was not the nature of how he knew God to care for his people. And so he's going he's gonna to press in on that. Lord, I know the nature of your character. You're not fickle. It's not that you've, you were so generous. You've heard my cries that you care for your people, that you're holy, that you inhabit their praises, that you're sovereign over them. And now you've just, that's all, that's how it used to be. No, he's identifying and affirming God's faithfulness. David knew that the fathers trusted and Yahweh rescued them. That's the pattern of his faithfulness. He knew the fathers cried out and Yahweh granted their escape. He knew the fathers trusted and were not disappointed in Yahweh's care. And so perhaps we just need to ask ourselves, was David and his circumstances different then? Because if the Lord is faithful and these things are consistent and they're true, and this is how he's engaged his people throughout history, is David just different? Well, he would appear to have concluded as much. He said, you rescued them. You granted their escape and they were not disappointed. But me, I'm but a worm and not a man. And so he introduces here the, his dejection and mockery. And this in such a, a lowly way. He's just been utterly humbled, utterly humiliated, as though he had concluded that he was not in a position to enjoy the dignity of right treatment. Me, that is how you deal with your people. But I'm just a worm. I'm not even a man. David has been brought so painfully low in trying to balance his theology and experience through this terrible time. He trusted Yahweh, and yet it was this very trust that now was being weaponized as an assault against him. Not by the Lord, but by his enemies. He testified that he was found to be a disgrace, a shame among men, that he was despised and mocked, and this in such intimate ways. Because he could hear his mockers. It's, it's not like now where there's the whole keyboard courage or you, you throw something at somebody that they're never going to see you, they're never going to know you. He could hear his mockers. And not only their biting words, he, he's, he's talking his language of almost hearing their smacking lips as they're, as they're berating me. He could see them wag their head. They're just kind of mocking his face. He could see this. There's an intimate proximity in the language here. He sees them wagging their head and as their words were spewed at him. Um, and then their words were not even ignorant barbs even. They, they weren't just arbitrary, silly, childlike, detached statements of slander. These were intimate piercings, very calculated in their slandering. Because David trusted Yahweh who delighted in him but finding himself in this terrible position, it's as if these persons looked into his soul. They saw he trust in Yahweh, and then they plucked out that ember of precious hope, his confidence in God then they, that he held to so tightly, and then they took that confidence in God and just drove it into his heart. He trusts in God. Look at him now. And with this, we again hear the echo of how he began this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My confidence is now being weaponized to mock me. But has he? Has David been forsaken? Well, it would sure appear that way. 
But the irony is that perhaps the mocking of these persons, I would argue, has awakened something afresh in David. And they're taunting him. They stated, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. Because once more, David does just that. He commits himself to Yahweh. He's confident in the Lord. He affirms that which is true. And here he comes more uh, here, come, here he affirms more than the testimony experienced by the fathers and speaks to his own testimony of the Lord's care for him. So he's already said, you've been faithful to others. You've been faithful to those who preceded me. I mocked and berated and made low. But what is my experience? Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. David affirms that he has never known a moment of his life that Yahweh was not, has not cared for him. Now, whether or not he always was able to perceive or appreciate that, now, looking back, he knows Yahweh has always cared for him. Never also was he more vulnerable than the moment of his birth, and yet even then was he learning of Yahweh's gentle trustworthiness. And so now we have a compounding of truth being brought to David's time of great distress because just as the Lord has been faithful to the fathers and just as the Lord cared for him in his most vulnerable of days, so too now was he still sufficient to be wholly trusted. And in this, David was learning that in his trusting Yahweh, there was room for distress. There was room for brokenness because though he felt forsaken, the legacy of Yahweh's conduct toward others and himself spoke otherwise. Because from the beginning, Yahweh has been his God and continued to be now. A God that Psalm 119 testifies to being as good and doing good. Now with this in view, we might have expected the psalm to make a, a firm pivot here. Uh, we, we see that in the psalms. Again, if you're, if you're a student in the psalms, you almost anticipate it. When, when's that shift going to happen? It doesn't happen all the time. But especially something like this. I'm confident. I'm struggling. I'm trusting now. Whew, there's a shift. Well, that is coming, but not yet. Though we do see a decisive shift here. It's not a full pivot. It's not that firm pivot, but there is a little bit of a, we're, we're posturing toward it's coming. And there's a definite transition, as it were, but not quite as full as it will be. And so what's the nature of that, uh, that soft shift here? Well, I would argue that we see this because David is about to be brought even lower now. But, even so, and this is so very important, he's doing something different than he's done before within this context of, why have you abandoned me? Now he's petitioning again. He spoke of petitioning and not being heard. Now he's reintroducing, going to cry out to Yahweh, because I think that he knows he hasn't abandoned me. He's going to cry out again like a man who is confident that he has heard. So something has changed. As uh, has something's changed, as it were, and that something is that the truths that were anchoring his soul have snagged the ship from drifting further. The waves are still battering, but the ship is now steadied. So don't miss how precious the beginning of this portion is here. He states, Be not far from me, for distress is near, for there is none to help. That's not the language of someone who's been abandoned. You're far off, Lord. Now he's saying, the distress, the danger is so near. Lord, would you be near to me? He's petitioning again, and he's petitioning like a man who's confident he'll be heard. And he's going to unpack just how severe, though, this distress has become, but not without a view to God's merciful help and a readiness to ask for it. Now, 
In verses 11 through 13, David begins delving into the severity of his struggle. He uses some graphic images here to express his problems, a range of beasts, physical failures, and, and clear expressions of an imminent death. So the first of these images is that of powerful bulls uh, from a, a region that on account of its, its fertileness it produced strong bulls, strong beasts as it were, uh, such as their bulls, and they were a fitting image for the substantial nature of these threats. These, these bulls, they're encircling, they're, they're a threat, they're a danger. And then David transitioned his, his metaphor to, to ravening and roaring lions, opening their mouths at him, which appeared to be an image of those who are mocking and opposing him. As such, these mocking enemies were using their destructive mouths, not unlike a ravening and roaring lion, bit on a violent and consuming destruction. Then in verse 14 and 15, we have a more personal reflection on David's suffering, an accumulation of images that would, be, that would seem to express that he is utterly spent and wholly undone. And he began with an image of being poured out like water, an unrestrained loss and an absolute undoing. And again, it's as though he had been poured out like water, which could not be recovered. So if you spill something, you spill water in here, well, it'll be sad, we'll move on. But there's no putting it back in that cup. It's just, it's going to dissipate, it's gone. You're not going to recover that. And his body's like, it's been poured out. It was permanently spent. And then he goes on to give a complimentary image associated more naturally to his person, stating that all of his bones were out of joint. Next, he stated that his heart was melted like wax within him, a language not unlike the hopelessness expressed by those who were being dispossessed by Israel in the, the conquest, those who had no courage or strength of heart left within them. You remember Rahab's testimony to the two spies. They, she wasn't saying, um, boy, here's some strategic advantages y'all can take, and if you hit it just right, time it well, this will give you an upper hand, and get me to the general I can help out. No, she says, our hearts had melted like wax. They were undone. They were, we, we have no strength before you. Now David's using a like language. I, I'm, I'm done. And so here it appears that David has been brought to such a substantially low place now. He may well be tethered to truth, but it appeared that his demise was now imminent. His once robust strength was now like a potsherd, dry, broken pottery. David stated that his tongue was cleaving to his jaw. Though he himself was being poured out like water, he was utterly famished in his destitute condition. And all of this was plainly advancing him toward death. It now appeared that the Lord was returning him to the dust of the earth from which he came. An outcome that was all but certain in view of verses 16 through 18. Here you have the scavenger dogs were now surrounding him. So we tend to think, oh, dogs, that's really nice. They're, they're in the scriptures. These weren't domesticated dogs. These were pack animals that were scavengers. They were there to collect the bones and the, the, the weak, as it were. So you think of coyotes now. They were, and these were plainly identified, though, as a, as a band of evildoers who pierce his hands and his feet, which is itself a difficult expression to understand in this context. And it's driven people to different conclusions, but it's likely an image of these dogs tearing away at the defenseless flesh. So reaching for those appendages that are reaching out, just grabbing and tearing his hands and his feet. He then goes on to state that he can count all his bones, which is hardly the warrior's physique. You know, David was a, a profound worshiper, but he was a strong man. You can count on my bones. He's a, a, it's like he's emaciated, a, a, an emaciated man that's being gawked at by those who would go on to take possession of his clothes because he's not going to need them much longer anyway. But within this weighty barrage of struggles, 
David restates the petition that he introduced in verse 11 when he opened this section. Be not far from me. Now he states it as, but you, O Yahweh, be not far off. How different a tone he has established from the painful opening of the psalm where he stated again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Now the language is, oh my strength, hasten to my help, deliver my soul from the sword. He has a a refreshing of confidence in his God who has not abandoned him. And he continues on from here, drawing back on the threats that seem too much for him, the dogs, the lions, and the bulls. But now it's not their threats and assaults that fill David's attention, but confident petitions to be delivered from them. And this is not a misplaced confidence because he finishes this portion of the psalm with, you have answered me. That is an incredibly important line that we so casually can just skate by. We might see all those pictures and be like, wow, attention centered, attention's grabbed. Okay, now it's gonna gonna kind of fizzle out. Things are gonna turn better. No, that line, that is such a critical line there. You have answered me. Yahweh has not forsaken the righteous. He never has, he never will. And with this simple statement, the whole of the psalm changes its tone and trajectory from a mournful dirge to a declaration of worship that expands and expands and expands. So if you missed anything, don't miss that. You need verse 1 to appreciate the psalm, and you need verse 1 to really appreciate what happened in 21. You have answered me. You're not... You don't hear me. I'm so far from my salvation. He has a right view of God. He's struggling, continues cultivating that right view of God, starts petitioning, and then finally he affirms, you have answered me. If we're going to say verse 1 is one of the weightiest and most crushing expressions in the Psalter, then we also have to affirm verse 21 has to be one of the most precious. To be able to say, I cried out, And you answered me. You heard me. And it changes the whole psalm. David's declaration of worship began at this point. He goes from struggling to suffering and right views of God to petitioning to you've heard. And now his attention is on affirming and declaring the, the excellencies of God. David's declaration of worship began with now his attention specifically with the assembly of Israel. He wants them, you need to understand the nature of this God who hears. And so David, he petitions his brothers to whom he has testified of Yahweh's great name, praising God that they would understand he's going to declare this in, this present, in their presence. And with this, we see that he has modeled for us the, what we would say is the maturity of speech that we just worked through in James. With this pivot, he's also said, hey, Think about James. David didn't, but we can. And what, 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 how would we think about James? Well, what has he just modeled for us? Exactly what we talked about last week. If anyone is suffering, let him what? Pray. Petition. Cry out. If anyone is cheerful, what is he to do? Sing praises. David has petitioned in his suffering, and now what is he going to do in his cheerfulness? He's going to worship. He's going to call others to worship. And that's the nature of that pivot. And so first he's called his brothers, the assembly of Israel. He wants the beloved, the, the covenant people. 
worship, recognize the God who delivers and hears. And David also now throws ambiguity of persons aside. No more animalistic references or broad categories of offenders. No, he is entreating those who fear not man but Yahweh, the seed of Jacob, the seed of Israel. And he is calling upon them to join him in praising Yahweh and glorifying God and standing in awe of him. Why? Why this urgent pressing of Israel to worship? Well, he states it very plainly here. Because he has not despised and he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. That's why he's demanding Israel, seed of Jacob, God's covenant people, worship. Because he has not despised, he has not abhorred, he has not hidden his face. But when he cried to him, when we cried to Yahweh, he helped, he heard, he responded. And David continues making it plain that the Lord and his work were the source of his praise in the great congregation. Further, it appears that David has had chosen to make a special vow in return for his deliverance, which was a, it was a common enough practice that its execution was prescribed in the sacrificial code for Israel. Such a sacrifice was referred to as a vow offering. So if you were in Leviticus this week, you probably saw a vow offering. And it's uh, high expectations. Again, as prescribed in Leviticus 22, it's a, it's a higher standard than a freewill offering. So you could offer things to Yahweh as an expression of worship and gratitude, but a vow offering was, Lord, deliver me please would you hear my cries and i in turn will 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 sacrifice the lord doesn't need it's a return of thanks to him but when you make that vow you are to honor it so the vow offering was often pledged in a context of someone needing deliverance and was in turn offered in testimony to the lord's delivering the person that had been vowing now an element of the offering associated with this vow was that was a little different was the the portions that were not sacrificed on the altar they were to be eaten by the one making the sacrifice and was often shared with others as well and so with this it's stated that our, out of generosity the poor and needy would often be brought in to participate in the time of grateful eating and some of that language is being i would argue appropriated here by david as well so david made a vow in conjunction with his pleas for deliverance and he's declaring that just as the Lord was faithful to deliver, so he will be faithful to honor his vow. And then next he appears to finish his call for, to worship for Israel and with an affirmation and blessing. The affirmation is that those who seek him will praise Yahweh. He is not forsaking his people. The blessing appears to be for the people's enduring blessing. May your hearts live forever. And with this, David expands his view now beyond Israel. Why would he do that? Well, because he also recognized Exodus 19, that Pastor Frank said this is an important passage. If you want to understand the book of Exodus, that Israel was to be a what? A priestly nation, a witness-bearing nation to declare the excellencies of Yahweh to all people. And so David expands his view of worship to the nations, that they too be worshipers of a God who hears and delivers. An expanded view that I would propose should have us considering the nature and expectation of the greater reach of the Abrahamic covenant by which the ends of the earth remember and turn to Yahweh, thereby joining this company of worshipers that David speaks to here. So here we have, in verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. 
And then in verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before Yahweh and all who go down to the dust will bow before him. And what grounds all this? What centers this um, expanded view of worship among the nations? Well, it's right there in the middle. For the kingdom is Yahweh's and he rules over the nations. David, who's gone from despair and tethering himself in truth and wrestling with its ramifications to declaring I have been heard is provoked to worship. He, de- he declares and calls Israel to worship and now he is calling the nations submit to your God. Worship a God who hears. And finally this section is further bracketed with the afflicted and God seekers in verse 26 and the future generations in verses 30 and 31 putting a firm stamp on the future and comprehensive sweep of worshipers to come. So it's from the afflicted to the seekers, to the nations, and to those yet to be born. Verse 26, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him will praise Yahweh. And finally, in verses 30 and 31, their seed will serve him. It will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. So we see David, Israel, the nations, and those yet to be born all testifying that the Lord does not forsake the righteous, whose lips are filled with both prayer and praise. Now I think we're almost ready to hear Psalm 22 with a view not only to Christ's crucifixion. I think that would be a deficient view of Psalm 22, but also with a view to his resurrection and ultimately his exaltation among the peoples, all peoples. And the last statement I want to provide for us is a view to how James may well have heard and been impacted by Psalm 22. Again, that's part of my, my interest this morning is to, um, in 2020, I, working through First Peter, I gave Peter's resurrection testimony. And this year I want to focus on how, what would be the nature of James's resurrection testimony? How would Psalm 22 have impacted someone that, that grew up in a God-fearing, faithful, righteous home who in some way sung or was familiar with these truths that knew the range of emotion and expression and confidence in God? Well, I think it, it will help us to have a view to how James, so that we can have a view to how we ought to as well. So again, James may well have heard and been impacted by Psalm 22 and its role in helping us appreciate Jesus' own path also from a terribly painful question to the assurance of having been heard and ultimately his receiving his due worship from those spanning from all people, groups, and generations. So James will bridge that for us. It's not just an idle curiosity. How would James have thought about this? It's how would James have thought about this so that we can think about it better, so that we can think about how we go from a terribly weighty question to struggling with deliverance, to petitioning God, to directed to worship, not only God's covenant people, but all peoples. Because that's where the path leads us, not only in Psalm 22, but also to the person and work of Christ. So again, once more, when we hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. When we hear that, we struggle not to first and foremost have Christ's crucifixion rush to the fore of our minds. We've, we've established that. We recognize that. But now we have more to work with. Now we see David's struggle expressed in that. And that's how I think James would have thought about it. James would have heard David. 
James would have, had, would have heard the anguishing pain of that extraordinary king and prophet from whom Messiah would come and whose throne he would occupy. He would recognize the Davidic covenant and the precious nature of, of the son of David, and he would have known the nature of those cries associated with that great prophet and king. And I would argue and remind you that when working through some of James's exhortations and commands to humility, that we speculated a little bit. Maybe you didn't speculate with me as quite as far. I hope you did, because I think it was safe speculation, but speculation nevertheless. And what did we do when we were working through James's engagement on humility? I would speculate that James would have all but certainly have known of another song, namely Mary's song about her firstborn son, Jesus was identified to be the Lord's Christ. And that was effectively, I would argue, it was, it was a private song. It wasn't sung in front of the congregation. It wasn't sung out in public, as best we know. It was a private song, but one secured for us in Luke's gospel. And one that I, again, I think we're in the realm of safe, sanctified imagination. I cannot help but to imagine Mary may well have sung in their home. I mean, she clearly sings and she clearly erupts in worship to God in song. So why not draw on those precious truths that she expressed in her Magnificat? So if that's a possibility, is it too far of a reach to argue, safely speculating that James would have known of Jesus's words and the surrounding events of his death? A death that was testified to having captured the attention of the whole of Jerusalem. Remember what Cleopas asked in Luke 20, uh, 24. He asked of Jesus, not recognizing him at the time, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And basically, how did you miss this? Everybody in Jerusalem knew about what happened with Jesus, this great prophet. And this was a death that James's mother witnessed. She was there. We know she was there. And, and the, the pain of that when seeing and hearing her son declare these words that we're so familiar with. You don't think that got back to James? Eh, I think so. When she heard the, her son turn her care over to John, who was also there witnessing, but behold your mother. You think that she would have missed a single detail as Simeon's prophecy reached its painful climax. When he stated, when Jesus was an infant in the temple, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You don't think that, you think she missed any details at all? Do you think that what stirred up all Jerusalem escaped James' attention? When mama heard and when you're in town, you probably got news of the details. So I'm sure that James knew of these things the nature of Christ's death, the nature of his words. And maybe some of the details could have gotten lost in the totality of this terrible drama, what got back to him, what didn't get back to him, but it's all but certain that Jesus crying out with the words of David would have left their mark on James. He would have felt what we wish we could properly feel when we hear David say in Psalm 22, 1, the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that would have rattled him as a worshiper. And then to hear that that's what Jesus said. Jesus said that when he was crucified. And I could imagine, you know, we don't have pictures of Jesus. We don't have even voice replication, as it were. But James would have known what he heard, what he sounded like. And he could have heard his own brother's voice in his, his, in, in his own mind. My God, my God, where have you forsaken me? He could have heard his brother declaring that. 
And then to hear that it was as though Psalm 22 were a rough script for those terrible hours. James would have been putting pieces together quite quickly here. It happened like that? That's like Psalm 22. Jesus' hands and feet being pierced. Okay, that's the nature of crucifixion. His garments were divided by casting of lots. Hmm. Those passing by him were blaspheming, shaking their heads. Almost exactly like, well, actually, it reads exactly like Psalm 22. And then the nature of their mocking. What did they, they, did they just pull this right out of the playbook here? They're mocking him for having entrusted himself to Yahweh, let him deliver him. James, who persisted in some measure of unbelief through the time of Jesus' public ministry, I argue and think reasonably so, would have known of the nature and the details of the crucifixion and would have put these things together and would have been pained by it. James, who undoubtedly heard Psalm 22 and with it the whole of its arc from its devastating question to its sure glories. And I hope we also will hear it and be impacted in view of the resurrection that way as well because it's not just Oh, he cried out that way. Wow, that's, that's precious because affirm, affirms, it's more affirmation of the nature of him being the son of God and prophecies fulfilled. That's true. But I think it's also saying, hey, look, there's more to that psalm and there's more to his story. So that in view, let's, for the final time now, read the whole of Psalm 22. And while we could draw on each of the gospels, we're going to read only a small portion of Matthew's account. I'm just going to read them back to back here. For the choir director, according to Ajalith Hashishar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you rescued them. To you they cried out and were granted escape. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They smack their lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me. For distress is near, for there's none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a lion that tears and roars. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, be not far off. O my strength, hasten to my help. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen you have answered me. I will surely recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you seed of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you seed of Israel. For he has not despised and he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Of you is my praise in the great assembly. 
I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Their seed will serve him. It will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done it. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. This is Matthew 27. And after tasting it, he did not want to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them were saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming up out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, because became very frightened and said, truly, this was God's son. Now, as you recall, Psalm 22, it had a defined hinge. There was a point of, of clear transition. You get to verse 21 and, and the whole psalm changes. It doesn't, it doesn't build. It doesn't gradually. It's this radically defined change. And what was that change? It was, he heard. He heard me. He answered. But where is it in Matthew? Do we have a like thing? Or should we just say, well, uh, Matthew's just drawing from, and the nature of the prophetic emphasis is it's just drawing from that first portion, and it's, it's very weighty and very necessary given the, the propitiatory work of Christ, taking on the wrath of God and satisfying the debt of sin, taking sin on himself, imputing righteousness to us. Is that where the psalm just lands? And that'd be good enough. It doesn't have to be built out further. But if there is a transition, where would it be? Well, I would argue it is there. It is there. It's specifically in Matthew, and it's going to come just after where we left off. It comes in verse 6. He is not here, 
for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. That changed everything. That didn't just change the trajectory of a view to suffering. It didn't just change that when he cried out, he was expressing the weight of something that we can't, we'll never be able to apprehend. But we're reminded the Lord never, never forsakes his beloved. Never forsakes, rejects, and distances himself from his righteous ones. And like Psalm 22, this hinge would be the point of transition from suffering to worship to include the soliciting of others to join in affirming and glorifying the magnificent testimony of the Redeemer. It wasn't just, oh, now it's better. He's been heard. We know the Lord heard. We know that he indeed has entrusted himself to God and God has answered him. It's not only that. Now he's going to call on his people to worship. He's going to call on the nations to worship. He's going to call on the posterity of those to come to worship. So following his resurrection, we know that Jesus engaged many persons, up to 500 believers at one time. Quite a magnificent experience that would have been. And we know there were many other magnificent resurrection testimonies that came from Jesus personally engaging various persons. We, Mary Magdalene, she would have had her personal resurrection testimony she could share that we have record of. Uh, Peter and John had their personal resurrection testimonies and, and included a foot race even. And there, there's little cute details and, and there's engagements and restoration, but they're personal resurrection testimonies. Thomas had his own personal resurrection testimony. People like to poke at him, but you would be in the same place. Stop pretending that you're better than Thomas or Peter or any of the rest of them. But he had his own resurrection testimony. And later in due time, even Saul had his own resurrection testimony where uh, why are you, it's hard to kick against the goads. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? It's Jesus, the crucified, risen Savior. Oh, resurrection testimony. But one person that we know whom Jesus engaged does not have the details about their engagement recorded. We don't know why. It just, it's not provided for us. And because of that, we're left to speculate. And I think we're safe, but we are speculating. And so we don't know what tears were shed by James. As you have this mixture of, of sorrow mingled, mingled with joy, he was, he was one of the brothers that were saying, you're crazy. You're crazy and persisting in unbelief and even taunting Jesus. And so you can imagine the, the tears of, of sorrow mingled with joy, his sharing of his shame for his years of unbelief or the complexity of emotions to include knowing the glorious overlap of Psalm 22 and the experiences of Jesus. He would have understood that. And so he would have understood, that's my brother. That, that's the one that I, I could have walked with, that I heard, and the testimony was so clear. And then I, I saw the suffering of the Lord's Christ. But we don't know. We don't know what the nature of that engagement was. But what we do know is that Jesus engaged his brother, his half-brother, as it were, the son of Joseph and Mary, and he believed. And we know that James plainly appears to have forfeited now something in that engagement. He wouldn't have us call him Jesus, uh, James, the brother of Jesus. He's exchanged the title of brother for slave. That's how he engages his opening of his letter. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his resurrection testimony was one that included giving himself in service to the resurrected Christ by way of caring for and leading 
in Christ's church, a leadership that included the pivotal participation in the Jerusalem Council where the doors to the nations were not only open, that had already arguably happened, but now they're going to be forced to stay open. And in such, James has become part now of our resurrection testimony too, as we're among those included in the families of the nations who now worship the Lord and are part of the generations who have come and have the clear charge to also declare his righteousness to others. To make plain to all men that the Lord has not forsaken Jesus, that he has not given his Holy One over to corruption in the grave because of that pivot. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for words that um, in some ways almost haunt us. They, w- they would want to. If they were left alone, they would. They would just, uh, they would crush us. We can't bear up under a question like that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a, what a terrible burden to have to, to think of such thoughts, to articulate them, to record them for posterity. And so, Lord, we thank you that um, what, what even in those words were, were likely in some form exaggerated by David were, were perfectly true of Jesus. If any man in all of history could have declared the weight of that question, it was in taking on the sins of the world, the, the Lamb of God who takes, uh, takes on the sin, takes away the sins of the world, the, the Lamb that was slain, taking on the wrath of God. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, the testimony of David didn't stop there. In his pain and his struggle, he taught us to do some things. He taught us that struggle as we might to maintain a right and high view of God, to struggle as we might and think that we're not heard and, and certainly have really good reason to feel like that's the case, to still petition and to petition knowing that we will be heard. And then having been heard, pressing us to worship, pressing the, the, the fellowship to worship, pressing others to worship, pressing those who would come to worship. And so we thank you for the testimony that when we read that intimate overlap and we see the, the lots being cast, the heads wagging, the nature of the blaspheming, the piercing of the hands and feet, when we see all such things, we don't just say, oh, what, that was a lot like that. Now, you know, that's Psalm. Or it's the font's different in my Bible. I think it's connected. Now, we see there was a magnificent, a beautiful intentionality to show us the suffering son that wouldn't remain the suffering son, but would be the resurrected and glorious Lord, again, who not only calls the nations to worship, but will himself be worshiped. Now the lamb that was slain stands as those slain, receiving the testimony and the, the glory and the days to come of all peoples. And so, Lord, we thank you that um, as Jesus prayed for his disciples, he also prayed for those who would believe in their testimony. And the nature of the apostolic testimony was those who were commissioned by the resurrected Lord. And that's an important detail. And we thank you that those who were commissioned testified to that which they saw and heard. And we thank you through their testimony we've believed. 
that we're part of that, as David expressed, the generations to come. As, as Christ prayed, those who would believe in their testimonies. And we thank you for James's role in that. What a terrible burden for a, 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 a half-brother and unbelief to bear, but how kind that both James and uh, Jude and others likely were among those who came to believe and behold the resurrected Christ. So Lord, we, we pray that we also would be provoked to worship and that we would love you more, that we would grow in your grace and be found faithful and then in such, not only be better worshipers, but we'll call upon others as well. So we thank you, Lord. And may you be exalted in our resurrection testimonies too. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.